0: In a certain kind of way, we're, we're restarting. The, like, we are going to be doing some of the things <clears throat> we did at the very start of this class. Which is to say, we're in this weird melting pot of different sciences. First thing I want to understand is, there is history before the Europeans show up. And you might find this confusing because you may have been told that what one of the main things that Europeans brought to the new world was the written word. That's not entirely true. In fact, it might be very misleading. For one thing, a lot of deciphering has been going on in the last 50 years. So, that we now have a much better understanding of the writing systems of the Mexica, who you might know as the Aztecs, of the Maya, somewhat of the Inca. And there are suspected writing systems found in more, well, places closer to where we're standing right now. So, it's not all, quote unquote, prehistory, right? Remember, I'm just separating out. When I say prehistory, I mean what you're stuck with before the invention of some kind of written record. But, fortunately, just like with doing the ancient Sumerians or Utsu the Iceman, we have a wealth of other materials, right? We can talk to anthropologists, we can talk to archeologists, we can talk to climate scientists, for example. We can talk to all sorts of people to sort of come up with some really basic understandings. But I want to remind you that unfortunately you're stuck in this class with someone who is deeply invested in Eurasia. And while I desperately do want to learn more about the early history of the Americas, I'm more than happy to admit that this is not my area of expertise. I think I hopefully still know some things that you don't know, and I can share them with you, but where I am happy to share things from sort of the bleeding edge of historical research in all topics Eurasia, I'm less able to do so when we get to ancient America. So let's start with the basics, right? This is the sort of the standard, the, the standard model. This is not universally accepted. Every now and then a new piece of evidence shows up that kind of puts some cracks in it. But the standard model is the Americas were only populated by human beings, call it 12,000 years ago. And this is going off of that theory you probably have heard many times, that at the last glacial maximum, enough of the seawater had been locked up in ice sheets, that the Bering Strait turned into the Bering Land Bridge. And there's a lot of evidence in support of this theory. Not least of which is genetically and culturally, these people today, remain very closely related. Culturally, linguistically, anthropologically, they're definitely related. Are they related because of something that happened 12,000 years ago? Or something that happened much more recently? As a historian, I am deeply suspicious of this. Because two people in the 20th or 21st century are, are related today, does not mean that that relationship began at some specific point in the, in the past. I suspect that in our lifetime, this number will be pushed back. I suspect that in our lifetime, we will find enough evidence to suggest the Americas have been populated for considerably longer. But that will require reevaluating what we know about ancient peoples and their use of watercraft of some kind of, you know, ocean-going vessel. Now, I don't know about you, I have small kids, so I have seen Moana a lot. And one of the things that that has created in my children is this romantic idea of people who sort of just on a whim hop into catamarans or other sort of outrigger canoes and sail from island to island. That is definitely true of certain cultures in the South Pacific. It is not as clear if that culture would extend all the way to the Americas. Islands are pretty hard to see here, but just to be, so we're all on the same page. When we talk about Polynesia and Micronesia, that's this part of the Pacific. That does not, for me, stretch human credulity to say, yes, there could have been a network of people who knew how to easily sail between islands that are so small they're not on this map, but there is a whole lot of nothing in this part of the Pacific. So I'm not saying that it's impossible to have early settlement of the Americas, specifically from Polynesian islands, Unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of evidence for that yet. But, and again I'm saying, the main difference is, there is now a generation of children growing up with that very idea. And so it's possible that they'll ask the right questions, find the right evidence. So I'm telling you, while I don't understand how that can happen, I will not be surprised if evidence is found that suggests that, yes, the Americas were first settled maybe 30,000 years ago, or... 20,000 years ago instead of 12,000 years ago. So the civilizations and cultures and at this point I think we have to say they are all prehistoric are in the places that you would expect them to be. But I'll point out the year, right? This is ancient Babylon you know, late Sumeria ancient Egypt so In the point where in the old world, or Eurasia, we have a handful of sort of developed civilizations, we have an identical cropping of civilizations in the so-called new world. So if we got into a time machine and went back to 1000 BCE, I do not think we would notice any major significant differences in the developments of humanity between the Americas and Africa, Eurasia, at least not on this superficial level. We have certain river valleys that give rise to controlled agriculture, that that model follows well. Where things are going to change. And again, I'm telling you, if we find out later that history actually goes back significantly farther, that there have been people here for tens of thousands of years, it doesn't change the fact that we have no evidence of controlled agriculture that go back that far. Same for Africa and Eurasia, right? We know that human people have been walking around for a 100,000 years. But without agriculture, without stable food supply, people are, well, they're harder to separate from the natural environment from the birds and the bees, so to speak. But this is the point, I think, where a division becomes more clear. Because from this point onward in Africa and Eurasia, we will begin to see the steady, ever-growing population of, let's call them animal friends, domesticated animals, whether these are chickens, or pigs, or cows, or horses, or donkeys, or mules, or goats, sheep, the whole menagerie of animal friends. You got llama, and there are certain areas where very large guinea pigs are herded, but I think it's a stretch to say that they are, quote unquote, domesticated. There is some evidence, some possibility that attempts at domestication happen. But again, I think I made this clear earlier in the class, very little research is being done in relationship to the rest of the world. No one's really looking to sort of prove that these ancient civilizations were the equal of those in Africa and Eurasia. I Again, I'm hoping that in our lifetime this will change. I'm a little cynical. I don't quite suspect that's gonna happen. So, if we scoot ahead, and I'm sorry we're just jumping 2,500 years into the future, this is one of the issues with having very limited historical material. But even with that limited historical material, we can very confidently point out a, 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 saddle, a constellation, that's the word I want, a constellation of unique, individual, in some cases, historical civilizations and community, communities. So when I say historical, I mean people who actually write down a history with, a, with some kind of writing code. I don't mean just like oral histories passed down from, you know, elder to youngling. I mean, actual things that are written and preserved. My main issue with this this map is Patagonia is labeled nomads. I'm not the person who made this map, but I will remind you that that's not what the word nomad means. There is no one here that we know of who is hurting some kind of mammal. So I would call these people hunter-gatherers. And I would say they're probably doing similar to whatever the people up here are doing. The difference is, this group of hunter-gatherers is in a pleasant enough climate. Maybe that's a little harsh, I shouldn't say that. For whatever reason, for reasons we don't know, the people here have a larger shared community where in this part we don't have a lot of evidence of a of a group of people larger than a tribe all of these other areas that's what you're seeing right these are populations of people significantly larger than a tribe significantly larger than a town or a city right if we're looking at Mesoamerica like these communities tens of millions of people what makes that number so amazing and so shocking is I'm gonna remind you, this is without the benefit of dairy products. It has taken a very, very long time for these populations to grow because the average woman just cannot have that many kids. Okay, I'm now gonna bring this for the first time in this class very much into our backyards because there is an element of history all around us here in Southwest Virginia that is, it's interesting to me because I feel like it's, it's both unknown and uncared for. Like no one really cares how we get about this. So you'll notice that where we are is right on the edge of what is being labeled here as these Algonquin alliances. So using archeology span and botany, which is to say a study of, of like plant remains, archaeobotany is, a, is another one of these fields. We can say with some great certainty that in the year 1500, a lot of the East Coast was unforested, was clear. Does that mean that all of this land is under some sort of uh, cultivation? Not necessarily. Every now and then, uh, certain conservationists, certain environmentalists will get up in arms about the, the lack of so-called old-growth forests. Well, here's something that, that most people don't realize. There were very few old-growth forests when the Europeans arrive. Because when I say... Old-growth forest. To list, I don't know, a random person, they think of the redwoods. But like to a scientist, an old-growth forest means something specific. It means, in the succession of types of forests, most forests have a, a pinnacle, a, a, a zenith, a point, a point after which they stop changing. Right? We see forests at different stages of succession. The types of trees stop changing, and those trees are are sort of the, the top of the tree food chain, and they just live, well, not forever, but hundreds, and sometimes thousands of years. There are very few of these old growth forests on the eastern seaboard, largely because huge swaths were not forested. This is not news. And it also runs totally contradictory to the story that most American history textbooks have been telling. Why does this matter? Because people did that, right? To me, very clear to you, what happens if 90% of the people who live here die? That, that's what happens. This is a climate in which trees Trees don't have to be planted here, okay? Now, I've, I've lived in some other parts of the world where every tree is adored and loved and raised from, like, acorn or seed because it's in a part of the world where trees have to be grown, right? Like, there's not enough water. The climate is too harsh. If we all die tomorrow, these trees are going to be fine. Right? This whole area will turn into forest. None of us have to do that. Does that make sense? Right. This is like the, the sort of what this climate will produce. So the fact that when the Europeans show up in the 1600s, if you're paying attention and you're reading their early reports, you'll read some things that are really confusing. Right. They talk about finding prairies In the Carolinas, prairie. Now other historians come later and say, well, they're just confused or they're drunk or they're crazy or they're seeing what they want to see. They talk about finding humongous herds of bison in Virginia. Now these are not like European Buffalo that live in the woods. These are bison that live in the prairie. I guess what I'm trying to make clear to you is someone wanted bison to be there. Someone created a landscape in which they could live. In the same way that we understand that there's a a great deal of evidence of widespread intense cultivation of beans and squash, corn, pumpkins, right? All of the sort of the, the, the basic foods that we recognize as being indigenous to this land where did this go well this is where i want you to think again about what the bronze age collapse means the bronze age collapse in 11 call it 1122 bce led to the collapse of whole civilizations right they had writing before they don't have writing after they have a history before they don't have a history after it doesn't mean every single man woman and child falls over dead what percentage of them died? I don't know, but enough of them, enough of them died that whatever knowledge of the past could not be carried on. I am arguing to you, call this the Gunpowder Age Collapse. Enough of these people died between the year 1500 and 1600 that when the Europeans show up, the people who survived have, again, it's not like they have no idea of their ancestors, but unfortunately, our early accounts of these indigenous people are of a scattered people who live in very small tribes who are subsistence farmers, right? They're not really thriving, per se. And their sense of their history, it's mythical, it's legendary. Now I'm telling you, person living in 2020, to me, this is like talking to Homer. If I talk to Homer about the Mycenaeans, he will talk about them as heroes who live amongst the gods, that golden age. Granted, he's actually talking about people who were his great, great grandparents, people who lived not that far before him. But he has a sense of them as legendary figures. This is not just me telling tales, okay? Anyone can look this stuff up on the internet and find the accounts. The early accounts from the people who were found in Jamestown. Even later, Plymouth Rock, right? The famous pilgrims. Every town that they settled in that first, let's say, 20 years, was already cleared. In many cases, already had structures standing had fields that were already growing food that had just been left fallow because everyone there had died. And it's there in the accounts. They are thanking God. We would have starved had we not landed in this place that was prepared for us. You're living in the heart of American bison territory. If we were standing in this place 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 600 years ago, I think we would see a herd of bison out there. Now, are they domesticated? No. nice thing about bison, though, is they really don't like the woods. So you can basically make the, the equivalent of a pen for them by making a clearing of X amount of size, and that's where you can do your hunting... It's not quite domestication, right? They don't drink buffalo milk. That would be awesome. They don't make buffalo cheese. But there is some civilization that is wiped out before the first Europeans ever set foot in Jamestown. What wipes them out? the, 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 The diseases, right? Brought by the earlier Europeans who show up a 100 years before the English. Now, this is not the story as it's typically been told, right? I can look up the history of Franklin County. I can look up the histories of Virginia. They all read like this, right? They see a place of just entirely forests. The only things they hear are birdsong, It's the forest primeval. It is a land that has been given to them by God, and there are a handful of savages you have to worry about, but really, they're not that big of an issue. The first European colonists here write repeatedly about these gigantic and dying herds of bison. They're dying because they don't have enough to eat. They can't eat acorns, right? They're, they're not forest dwelling buffalo like Eurasia has. They, they need prairie, but the prairie is going away. These accounts are still available for us to read. The historians who are writing the histories of Virginia in the 1700s and 1800s. They basically say, well, these people, are, they're just crazy. They just don't know what they're talking about. I'm speaking as a historian. You need to stop. The next time you, you just want to say, you know, it's easier just to call this guy nuts. But, well, either he's nuts or you're wrong. Why are you so sure that you are right? And the reason they're, they're convinced they're wrong is they know what Virginia looks like when they're alive. Mostly forests. You can look around and see a lot of failing and failed tobacco plantations and lots of land that is returning to forest. And quickly, right? There's that sense of they themselves can see, when a plantation fails, how quickly the forest comes back. So I'm I'm telling you, I think the evidence is right in front of them. They can see just how quickly the forest reclaims this land. A good argument can be made that the human presence was less visible in this area in 1750 than it was in 1492. The human presence meaning literally like being able to see artificial things created by human hands. There were more people living here in 1492 than in 1750. They were busy doing whatever it is that their civilization asked of them. And when they die, Europeans are, have, are not even on the scene yet, right? That's that's the miracle of contagious diseases. And to be clear, we also could bring back the bison, but the, the fact of the matter is people of Eurasian descent look at a bison and be like, what's the point? right? Like we have cows. If I really want something that big, I can get oxen. We don't value this as a source of protein, as a source of clothing. So we can't even imagine why anybody would want to create a prairie just to keep bison around. And I think that's, that's, the lesson I'm trying to impart here is that our modern brains created by the the stimuli that we experience every day, they lack the context to, to have like, sorry, the, uh, the necessary curiosity to sort of ask the right questions. I don't think that you and I are just smarter than these dum-dums writing their false histories. I think as human people, we are not nearly as curious as we like to think we are. So that now, if you want to see bison, you have to go to where prairie naturally occurs. And even then, you have to find very small, protected areas. The idea that there were bison living from coast to coast kind of boggles the mind, and yet, how do I make this clear? I think if Americans know anything about the bison, they know of a period in like the late 1800's when the white man arrived with his train and rifles and nearly wiped them out to which I'd say yeah we did nearly wipe them out just like we nearly wiped them out in the 1500's without rifles and without trains we wiped them out by inadvertently wiping out the population of people who created the habitats that they lived in so Two days after reaching Virginia in 1607, the Jamestown scholars wrote, quote, the native peoples are burning the grasslands. Now, if you walk around Jamestown today, you will not find a great deal of grassland. And they did not understand what was going on. They assumed, because all of us are narcissists, that it had to do with them. They're burning the grass because of us. This is some sort of sign, some sort of symbol, right? It's some sort of smoke signal. Now, they were probably burning the grass because that's what you do to take out the seedlings, right? Grass will grow right back. That's how you maintain a meadow. We found that the savages had been there burning down the grass as we thought, either to make their plantation there or else to give signs to bring their forces together to give us battle. The idea that they're doing this to preserve a meadow for bison to use does not enter into their imagination. Again, this is not Nebraska we are in, right? That trees are gonna, trees are gonna happen. You have to actively fight against it. If you don't want trees, well, maybe you should move somewhere else. The forest primeval is, is the term that's often used, or the primeval forest, meaning the idea that when Europeans got here, they referred to it as a Garden of Eden, in that sense of it's untouched. And people still believe this today, thanks to the garbage we call you know Disney and Pocahontas, right? The idea that there are these people who just dance through the woods and magically talk to the animals and see with all the colors of the wind and whatever. And that's great, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't care about like the, the historical person of Pocahontas, but Native Americans weren't magical, right? Like that is an incredibly insulting, disrespectful way to talk about people. It's like it's like watching minstrel shows of white people in blackface pretending to be, you know, happy-go-lucky. I'm just so glad to be a slave because massa takes care of everything. I'm so happy to be an Indian because. You know, I can talk to the great spirit and she will ask a deer to lay down for me so I can kill it. They're people. They have the same abilities and disabilities as the rest of us. So this idea that it's just forest from Atlantic to the Mississippi, that it is a wilderness as God made it, that's just not the case. Most of the forests seen by the first European Eurasian settlers were in their first generation. Do you want to know what a first generation forest looks like? Walk the trails on this campus. They're real woods. You can get lost in them, I guess, if you don't know your way around the woods. Right? The trees are real tall, taller than you. None of those woods were there 100 years ago this was all farmland mostly apple orchards and crappy tobacco plantations i mean crappy in the sense that they weren't very productive this isn't the best soil those farms and plantations failed forests came back it looks real right you look around beautiful forests like they're real forests they're not old you see what i'm saying like you have this maybe this idea that oh i would recognize a young forest yeah maybe you would if you if you're trained in it right but i think if i just grabbed a random person driving down 40 and said hey how old do you think those woods are i don't know if the average person would be able to say well okay maybe 80 years old because that's about how old they are this is the story right from many many a high school textbook a squirrel could have crossed from branch to branch for a thousand miles and never have seen a flicker of sunshine on the ground. It's a lovely image of an unpopulated area ready for our population to move in. Early explorers were awed by the expanses of grasslands they found in Virginia, especially in the Shenandoah. Patches of savanna covering hundreds of acres. West of the Blue Ridge, a tall grass prairie blanketed the valley floors, interspersed with groves of trees in the wetter areas. After the local population died out, the large herbivores, here we mean bison, disappeared from all of these areas, which promptly sprouted trees. In 1733, William Bird's survey party found abandoned, overgrown villages, a few scattered bison, and miles of young saplings consisting of oak, hickory, and sassafras, which is what a climate or plant scientist today is exactly what they'd expect. That's succession for us. This is step one. Oh, sorry. Next question. So, if we are, again, I'm always the first person to say, let's not assume history repeats itself, right? And the the, the funny thing is, when we say history repeats itself, we're usually making an argument for human agency. History repeats itself, so you need to do something differently this time. I'm more of the opinion that if history repeats itself, it's out of our hands, right? History repeats itself because baked into our human brain are certain, certain benefits and certain flaws. Okay. So, leaving Virginia behind, We have a lot more evidence of advanced civilizations that are just as much ignored in, let's call it, uh, the southwestern parts of this country, but particularly in in middle America, the Mexica, people we call the Aztecs. So here's, here's one of the struggles, right? The amount of archaeological funding and attention and scholarship paid to this part of the United States, I won't even say it's comical. It's essentially non-existent. And it has often been a case of like deliberate destruction of archaeological sites. Most of the mounds and remnants of temples and cities that were found by the first Euro, let's call them Eurasian settlers, are actively destroyed and torn down and used as building materials. Now, you might think this is callous, but to me, it's like, well, that's what, that's what happened in in Mesopotamia, right? Most of the ancient cities that we think of as, you know, so important archeologically, themselves are built of the reused bricks harvested from other ruins. So in this case, I don't think it's being done as some sort of like, I don't know, malice intent, but the effect is the same. The city we call St. Louis was called, when it was being settled, the City of the Mounds. For this, the sheer number of what were probably massive temple complexes and living populations, from what little has been discovered, probably by the year 1350 or 1400, there were close to somewhere between 200 and 500,000 people living there, which is what we'd expect. It's at the confluence of major rivers. It's in the center of this massive area where we see a great deal of farming and cultural practices. And I'm telling you things that we have the slimmest traces of evidence for, because again, most of the evidence has been actively destroyed. One of the threads that I personally find interesting is it seems that this Mississippian culture faces some internal struggles, so that it faces some real difficulties long before the Europeans show up, so that many of the people seem to flee south. And the thread that I like to take from there is, oh, that's interesting, because the Mexica, people, we call the Aztecs, they call themselves the Mexica or the Azteca because they think they come from Aztlan, some mythical land far to the north along a river hey, maybe this is where the Aztecs come from. I don't know. The, the languages and cultures are close enough. It's believable. But if I want to go to a place where the evidence is not hidden, has not been, quote-unquote, actively destroyed, I don't have to go that far, right? I could head just a little bit down the road to, like, you know, Arizona, New Mexico to hang out amongst the, the Pueblos which are now 100% touristified. And yet any one of these cities has hundreds, and most of them, thousands of years of history that no one seems to actively care about, largely because these are people who are the descendants of those who lived through this massive extinction event. Right? What language or writing had been used has not been rediscovered or re-put together. So now it's... At the far end of Taos... A tourist trap, unfortunately. ...among sprawling green pastures is the majestic Taos Pueblo. (laughs) Taos Pueblo is one of the most notable sites in our state. The only living Native American community designated as both a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a National Historic Landmark, people from all over the world come to experience this unique and sacred place. This village of multi-story Adobe buildings has been inhabited for 1,000 years. It is amazing to think how these structures of mud and straw have stood the test of time and how their full-time residents choose to live, still to this day, without running water or electricity, so their ancient way of life may be preserved. That's, to me, the most disgusting sentence, right? It's amazing how these people choose to live like filthy animals, right? I mean, you, I don't know if you heard the undercurrent there. It's amazing how these people choose to live. And that's great because you then can go and like, you know, knock on their front door and buy some beads from them and, you know, have a a specially made dream catcher or like, you know, a machete with some, you know, nice scroll work on the side or something. It's, it's a life, right? These people have maintained miraculously their ancestral home and the way that they can make ends meet is allow people who look like me to show up and buy some trinkets. This has never been the site of respectful anthropological or archaeological research. When it has been the site of research, these natives have been referred to as natives or a degenerate offshoot of the ancient stock. The people who live there are just, well, obviously they're not like their ancestors because look how pathetic and filthy they are. I think the main reason I would tell people to hesitate before they go to grad school and think about becoming a, a scholar, someone who, with a master's or a PhD, is please make sure you don't become like the assholes of the past. Right? This, it's the sense of superiority, right? That one of us is here to study the other person. If I'm here to study you, we all know who's the person in power here. But, you know, like, like Spider-Man's uncle says, whatever. Okay, so <clears throat> it's a pretty lame power, but it has its responsibilities. Here's We're now deep within history, right? I'm gonna tell you about something that happens not that long after the Spaniards have laid claim to most of the, the Mexica, let's call it Aztec empire. The number one threat to Aztec domination before the European shows up are the people of the Pueblos, right? Those are the people that they consider to be the most threatening and the most likely to throw off their attempts at domination. And so when the Spaniards take enough, how do we say this, political, capital, political control, because there's a very clear tipping point when Those people of the Aztecs who have survived the first rounds of disease, they understand the Spaniards are the game in town, and there's a a tipping point where, okay, we're working with you. Very early on into the Spanish conquest, there is a joint military expedition, and then many more that follow, right? The military expeditions that conquer places like Guatemala are done with the help of the Maya. The ones that conquer the Pueblos are done with the help of the Aztecs. those specific civilizations that are first encountered by the Spaniards are co-opted by them so that the military conquest of the Pueblos is not done by a Spanish army there aren't enough Spaniards right this is an army of probably 20,000 people of whom 150 are from Spain and they have maybe 50 horses and two cannons a handful of muskets It's an Aztec army with, like, some really cool dudes at the front of it. In one specific battle, we are told numbers down to to the single person. This is a report that's being given to the viceroy. They want to know how much they're supposed to pay people. And here's the thing I want you to realize. This first conquest is wiped out. Okay, so the story we tell of, like, European colonization of the new world as having zero resistance, that they just storm into areas and everything goes fine? No! It is a long, hard-fought process. The difference is, in this case, the viceroy is able to ask for more money because he says, well, it's not our fault. It's those dumb Aztecs. Right, that's the thing. That's that's the beauty of having a colonial army. No loss is your loss. I was just the officer on the horse, sir. I tried to tell them what to do, but what we're what we're hiding behind here is this massive battle between thousands of indigenous people who have been fighting for a long time, right? Who have their own political machinations, who have their own intrigues that we know nothing about, because the Spaniards don't know anything about it. That's the why, right? We can't know because the Spaniards didn't know. So the Pueblo Indians are not seen or touched again. And I Forgive me for saying Indians. We could say indigenous or Native Americans or Puebloans, for lack of a better term. By the time the church shows up in 1600, and I want to make this very clear, right? They tried military conquest that failed. They didn't go back. There wasn't a second conquest to try again. They're like... Ah, okay, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll wait, you know, put a pin in that. The church moves in for the, let's call it, soft conquest, right? We're just trying to save souls for God. And they're much more successful for about three generations. What happens is the Catholic Church has enough sway in the area that there is a local bishop who decides to call an end to what he sees the dangerous syncretism. Syncretism meaning this, these attempts to mix native religion with that of the Catholic Church. And that's, that's problematic because syncretism is the lifeblood of any successful religion. The Catholic Church survives by absorbing the practices of the people it converts. And if you don't think so, throw out your Christmas tree. Don't tell Guadalupe. By the time peace is established, by our best estimates, the population of the Pueblos has dropped by probably more than 90%. Disease. So the hard conquest failed, the soft conquest failed, but there's only so much you can do against typhus, smallpox, cholera. When the church arrived in 1598, the Pueblo people, which is great, because in Spanish that's the people people, the Pueblo people had begun to recover, but during the colonization, the Pueblos succumbed to disease. By the 1690s, only two Pueblos still had people in them, and those were barely more than villages. This maybe gives you a little bit more respect for Taos how it has held on, I think they deserve a lot more respect than, it's amazing that these people choose to live this way. I'm not supposed to drop F-bombs in class, but that that brings me real close. Between the arrival of the Spaniards and, let's say, the time of the Salem witch trials, for lack of a better point here, There is no part of the Americas that is untouched. This means a couple things, actually. We should should take this into account. They're not living in isolation. Whatever you think of essentially Stone Age hunter-gatherers, just like your great-great-great-grandparents in whatever village of Europe or Africa you think all of your family comes from, No, they don't stay put. They're not trees. They don't have roots. They move around. And they move around enough that these plagues have been able to spread far in advance of European colonization. Now, I want to make this clear. One of the reasons this is relatively new history, at least in the United States, is that The annihilation of the native populations wasn't like ignored. It was just entirely chalked up to Spanish conquest. They're the monsters, your honor. They're the ones to blame. They they thrill when they wipe out whole villages. They, They love to throw babies against walls. They love to cut people in half. They love to sick their dogs on the natives. There's no room in this story for things that over which the Spaniards have no control. And this debate, this misunderstanding, begins in Spain itself, okay? In the early 1500s, early days of colonization, the crown is trying to figure out what is going on over there. We sent you to collect... You know, souls for God, wealth for the crown, power. All we hear about is mass death. A disturbing number of the governors and officers who are sent over the new world are sent back to Spain in chains. Some of them, I do not doubt, deserved the punishment for crimes they committed. Many of them were being punished for the deaths of people that they never saw. I don't want you to feel bad or good or sorry. I'm not here hunting for heroes and villains. But I'm telling you this. This idea that the Spanish conquistadors are the number one villain in history is as much BS as feeling the same thing about Genghis Khan. I do not doubt that there were some real jerks amongst the conquistadors, but they are not the ones to be blamed for this mass death. Unless you want to say, well, inadvertently, because they brought the disease, but like, okay. So should we all hunt down, like, patient zero of COVID and make, and make them the scapegoat? Well, what will that achieve? N- nothing. Here's the thing. People love heroes and villains because they, they... It's like a pat on the head. It's telling you that human action matters. The world is driven by things that we do. We're the center of the universe. If something happens, it's because a person did it. And I'm telling you, sadly, you have to listen to the screaming of the abyss. You have to open your ears to the yawning collapse of society into the maw of oblivion and realize not everything is because of us. Maybe not even that much is because of us. You go looking for heroes and villains and yeah, you will be comforted and maybe entertained and titillated but you'll also be just lying to yourself. It's sort of an Occam's razor moment, right? I don't know how familiar you are with Occam's razor, the idea that all things being equal, the simplest explanation is the true one. The simplest explanation meaning the one that requires the fewest number of suppositions. The fewest number of times you have to say, well, what if x? Oh, well, what if this small number of people had to be, just happened to have one person who was sick with typhus. And the next boatload had one person who was sick with the measles. And the next boatload had one person who was sick with smallpox. Because that's how these things went. They, they didn't come over, they didn't bring like pens of sick people, okay? This is the part where I mentioned that one of the myths that I think many Americans are ready to believe, because it plays into our, our guilt, is the myth that the US military used smallpox blankets to wipe out the Native Americans. There's practically no evidence for that. But it's a story we're ready to believe, because we know huge loss of them were wiped out by smallpox. The problem with that is we assume that smallpox needs our help. It doesn't. It really, really doesn't, unfortunately. It also assumes that people in the 1800s knew what germ theory was and could understand that, yeah, I'm not saying that this suddenly, like, oh, that's great. The US military then has done literally nothing wrong in its history. No. But I'm just saying that our inability to, and I suffer from the same problem, our inability to separate our ability to make connections from the hunt for evidence. Okay, so here's, if I was going to try to blow your hair back, this is the moment where you say all evidence suggests that the two largest, most powerful states, countries, peoples, civilizations on the planet in the year 1450 wasn't the Ottoman Empire, wasn't the Spanish Empire, or the Islamic Caliphate, wasn't the Japanese or the Chinese. Without any question, it was the Mexica in what is now Mexico, and the Inca down in what is now Peru in terms of achievements, in terms of the size and power of their militaries. They both had many of the trappings of civilization we come to recognize, barring one, access to domesticated animals other than llamas. They are a testament to what you can achieve without animal friends. Now, because these are advanced civilizations, they leave behind a pretty healthy amount of written material, so this is well within history. We have eyewitness accounts from people who are writing before, during, and after the initial contact with the Europeans. They are not concerned with the Europeans. There are a handful of people with a more religious mindset who are going to see this as a doomsday moment, but guys, like that's, that's human nature, right? There are plenty of people walking around right now saying COVID is a sign of the end times. Really, there's a certain subset of the population that literally any news event is a foretelling of the next world. And this is, this is the overwhelming question How does a handful of people overthrow one or other of these massive? most powerful states. So first we can say, when I say better leadership, I don't mean better people, right? By better leadership, leadership is more than anything, a factor of communication. Once you throw in the ability to have all of the leaders in one room all the time, and those leaders who are outside of the room reachable by horseback, leadership jumps to the stratosphere. The Inca, were spread over multiple mountain valleys in massive cities, their ability to communicate with each other is laughable in comparison with Pizarro, who is, if he wants to tell somebody to do something, he just says, hey, go do that thing. This doesn't mean he's like a military mastermind. And I'm not saying he was or wasn't, but the point is communication is the number one element of military leadership and success. If you can tell a person to go do a thing, that's better than not being able to do it. Many of the military mishaps in military history can be chalked up to one person going off and doing a thing and not being reachable. Or one person mishearing orders. Like There's a long list on Wikipedia of like famously misheard orders that have led to most of the most dramatic military setbacks in the modern era in the age of like telephones and radios and stuff like it just you can't get over the fact that sometimes you've received orders and you're stressed you're hungry you haven't slept you read the thing and you're like oh you want me to go over there okay and you were just told to not go over there and now you just get yourself and sixty thousand people killed so when we're reading the incan sources they are also aware that people are dying of mysterious sources. Okay, they, they, there's no sense of, how do I say this? There's no great sense of surprise. Okay, In the Incan sources, like, oh yeah, OK, this is why we're losing. Because the Spaniards are all together in a clump. They always know what they're doing. They're perfectly organized. And at the same time, something is killing off whole villages, whole military units, And this leads to, as far as we can tell, and I'm always nervous to say this, a crisis of faith. I don't really, this is the one we have the least amount of evidence for, but there's this idea that at some point, some percentage of the Incan population basically just says, okay, this is end times. You know, they basically throw down their weapons and make their peace with the afterlife. Maybe. The point is, by 16. By 1565, 9 out of 10 of the Inca are dead. So they went from 100 years before being one of the most powerful, largest states on the planet to civilization-ending, world-ending death. And again, this is not a thing that is outside the knowledge of the Spanish, but the, 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 the crown itself, the kings and queens of Spain, don't really understand what's going on. They're more likely to blame it on misrule Right? Like Columbus himself is sent back to Spain in chains because, like, hey, all these people are dying. Why are they all dying? You must be killing them personally. You. Now, these are guesstimates, okay? We don't have a census, but we have a much better idea than we do with the Black Death. So, with the Black Death, I literally have no idea whether it's 15% or 50% of the population. The most conservative estimates are, oh, well maybe only 75% of the population died. That would still make it the the most brutal loss of life ever seen, like no one suggests that for the Bronze Age Collapse. 75% of the population, that is civilization ending. When De Soto is wandering around the Southwest, right? He sees an area thickly set with towns It is not visited again for a hundred years until some French Catholic missionaries show up. So there's no one there. No one there at all. A couple ruined towns with not a single person in sight. They travel for days and days and they don't see a single sign of a living human being. Now, we also have evidence that, of course, when the Spaniards show up, they bring their food with them. Right? They bring pigs. They bring horses. They bring cows. And there's also the suggestion that, well, it's possible that some of these plagues actually you know, were spread from the animals themselves. I don't really buy that argument because if that was the case, the Europeans would be dying too. Right? It would be a novel plague. It would not be if we had evidence of massive amounts of deaths amongst the European colonizers, which we may yet find. But at the moment, there isn't any. OK. The other thing I should point out is genetic pools are not a thing that have been very closely studied by historians. Like, geneticists find them interesting, but we're not really sure what to make of them. Which is to say, the deep, the deep end of the gene pool is in Africa. right? The amount of genetic variety in Africa that makes up 90% of genetic variety on the planet. The rest of us of not direct immediate African descent, we are relatively similar, right? That we have I have more genetic similarities with someone from mainland China or indigenous population of like Bolivia than I do with someone who is directly descended on, you know, all sides from Africa. We don't know what that's supposed to mean. Okay, geneticists are telling us that that's the case. What are we supposed to take from this? I can't tell you, but I can tell you this. If you have a smaller genetic pool, that means there's less variety. Fewer people are going to have those varieties of genetics that cause immunity. Does that make sense? Right? So the varieties in a larger gene pool can also be bad, right? There are lots of genetically altered states that lead to diseases that you can inherit. The indigenous people of the Americas have very few such diseases. Right? So like the the, the 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 myriad of like congenital heart defects and brain problems and like blood cell disorders really uncommon amongst the indigenous people of the Americas. Again, we see them very similar in the Siberian people on the other edge of the Bering Strait. So this idea that these that the native peoples of the Americas are related to those of Northeastern Asia, OK, but we see something very similar. And of course, quarantine is also a big deal, right? Had the Americas lived through the Black Death, probably things would have been very different. Which is to say, the number one thing that that the Spaniards tell us is, Unfortunately, we'll come to a town where people are sick and everyone has been gathered together in a single place, usually the temple. The sick and the not sick alike. Which is to say, these things that Europeans and Eurasians have learned from experience, the Americans have not. The Europeans know that a disease can be contagious. But you can do something about it. It's not up to God, right? We can have quarantine. We can put people in boxes and dig them, you know, bury them real deep. We can do these things. The Aztecs, the Mexica, also blame the gods. But they didn't understand that their sickness was related to the sickness of the handful of Spaniards because they didn't see these Spaniards. Right? So there's no sense of, like, they did this to us. So even in the moment, there isn't a sense of, of, of guilt or blame. All right, so we're not watching this, but I'm saying if you want to go into more detail on this, I know that unlike the rest of this class, world history, it's hard maybe for you to care care about the Sumerians, or the Scythians, or the Huns, or the Mongols. But people really care about American history. So I put this video link up there if you're interested. Oh, gosh, okay, we are out of time. So I'm going to just forget this part. I'll put it down to the next class. So do not, I don't, Ooh, actually, hold on. Let me think real quick. Bump 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 bump. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything. I think I'm basically repeating myself. What I basically wanted to point out was, uh, one of the things that we often hide behind that we often forget is the level of human sacrifice that was practiced in the Americas. Now, sacrifice is a part of every major religion, but like actually taking living people and cutting into them and taking out their beating heart, kind of unique. To the americas and it's widespread right the idea that blood is the actual thing that the gods need to eat that the blood is there as nourishment is common amongst the maya the algonquin tribes the inca like this I, this idea of blood sacrifice is really common and so i want to make this clear to you this meant that whatever feelings of guilt or sorrow the spaniards might have had or the Amer- or the other europeans coming might have had oh well, they're all dying They saw this and said, oh, yeah, that makes sense because Jesus has come to your shore and this is not right. And if you feel that that's unfair, that's cool. And I understand that I'm biased in saying this. I'm kind of glad that we don't do this anymore. I'm kind of on board with getting rid of this. That's my own bias, right? If, if If the tables had been turned, this would be normal to us. We would think of this the same way that you think about your church service. So I just wanna make that clear, like when this mass death is happening, the the Eurasians who see this are like, well, yeah, yeah, okay, good, right? This is the sign of the devil. I'm not saying it was the sign of the devil. I'm just saying to those early people, there was no, they were not misunderstanding this. This is people being cut open and it's particularly common amongst children. So it's one thing to imagine like an adult person if you saw that like ridiculous movie Apocalypto, right? The idea like oh well hey at least they're just taking like war captives. No, they did not just take war captives. You know there are whole cenotes around Mexico that have been you know dredged and all they find is hundreds of children's corpses with their rib cages broken and nothing else. So we know how they were killed. So I'm not saying that that. I'm not saying that this makes everything okay. It doesn't. But I want you to understand, yes, the Eurasian people who are traveling among them seeing this mass death, how do they deal with it? They see it as, well, yeah, judgment of God. Jesus has showed up. Jesus is not down with this, and so you all got to die.